Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to Deep in History and our continuing study of St. Irenaeus and his wonderful book, Against Heresies. Hello, Monsignor Steenson. How are you in, up, in the, up in the cold north? It's actually pretty pleasant in the 30s here. So, <laughs> <laughs> I actually got an email today from an old seminary friend of mine who was a Presbyterian pastor up in your neck of the woods, and he just got it this morning. It was really great to hear from him. And he said he had been out riding his bike around. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. the bike paths are clear. And yeah. Yeah, he, he lives up not far from you. So, but welcome, everyone. We're, we're now uh, coming to you in the year 2021. Uh, 2020 is behind us. Uh, although, and I, as we're taping this, uh, just to let you know, this is we're, we're taping this on on um, January seventh, Thursday, and so those of you that have been very aware, maybe if you're listening to this in the future, that uh, right now uh, we're going through a difficult time in our country uh, with the politics and uh, violence and people taking stands for their beliefs, I guess you would say it, right, Monsignor, in, in, in ways yeah. that, that have led to violence. And it isn't just one side of the political spectrum. It, it seems to be both sides. I don't want to get into politics in this program, but but I found it as I was preparing for this, Monsignor, it, it's very distracting uh, to, to try and focus on how to understand an author that wrote a few years ago 1,800 years ago or so, while we're here in the midst of the struggles we're going on. And so the question is, how does what Irenaeus wrote in, in the year 1075, no, excuse me, 175 AD, uh, apply to what we're going through as Christians in the year 2021? You know, Marcus, I spent quite a bit of time earlier this week working on St. Basil of Caesarea's second letter, which he wrote to Gregory of Nazianzus um, in the year 358. And he was trying to figure out how to have a soul that is tranquil. And he came up with, he was working on this, this uh, program of discipline. And the first one, um, the first step was basically to learn how to tune out the world. And I, kind of put down in my notes that uh, to put it, to make it, paraphrase it in modern terms, um, stay off social media. Oh. <laughs> or at least turn things down a little bit, dial it down a bit. I, I was reading, rereading for, I don't know how many times, the book that I published five years ago called Life from Our Land, in which it was a collection of articles I had written about and reflection. Right, I've, got, I've got that book. Wonderful book. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the comment, but I was reading in the, I have one article, a chapter in there called our economic, our economic life, 
and limits theory. I was being a little tongue-in-cheek on that, but I, I gave seven points in there on, 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 on what to do in the midst of a difficult time. And, you know, the first point that I made was uh, to look at what's stable in our world. And I found that that was kind of maybe a little tongue-in-cheek reflection on what our Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, look at the birds, you know, look at the flowers. And in a way, he was taking our distraction away from all the stuff going on and looking at that that God has placed within our creation that never changes. Mm-hmm. You know, the birds are, are singing the same songs today that they did during the time of Christ. All the stuff we go through, it doesn't affect, it might affect their life through our poor stewardship of the world that they're living in. But other than that, what goes on at Washington, D.C. doesn't affect the birds and the flowers and the, and the chipmunks. <laughs> Good, great point. So you, you know, I used in there the the image of a of a flame of a candle, and you you light a flame, and that flame hasn't changed since the creation of the world. Mm-hmm. It's the same. It's the same. That burning of that flame, which is the exact flame that's in every sanctuary in the world is the same. So start by getting connected to the the stable in the midst of a world that's all over the place. And and Paul says in Romans 1 that you can see the vestiges of God by looking at his handiwork. Bonaventure made a big thing out of that in, in his book, Journey of the Mind to God. You know, start there, start there. And then the second point I make of the seven was <laughs> cut out all the voices. Mm-hmm. The distractions. And, and yeah, I remember a number of years ago, Monsignor, I don't know if you remember, there was a, 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 a man shooting people in, in Washington, D.C. Do you remember that? That was, goes back about seven, eight years ago. There was a. Yeah. And it was a time of great terror for people living around Washington, D.C. You know, yeah. when he was shooting people, a, a sniper was shooting people at gas stations and it. And it kept happening, it kept happening. And I remember my wife and I watching TV almost 24-7, you know. And it became obsessive in so many people's lives watching this. And then we realized, the, the for us, the best solution was turn the TV off. Because what yeah. was happening over there wasn't affecting our lives, but it was because we were getting so worked up. How many of us are so worked up about things because what we've listened to in the media? All the voices. Irenaeus was going living at a time when I'm sure things were not always going well in Rome. And, and remember, not well in Lyon either, because um, persecution wiped out most of the church leadership before he started. Right. But if stuff was happening in Rome, he didn't know about it on a day-by-day, 24-7 so, you know, he was dealing with other issues, but what was happening in Rome or Alexandria or in Ephesus was not on his uh, to-do list every day. He was focusing on how to be a good 
bishop and how to help the common people in his area live their faith in the midst of heretical attacks. And that's really what we're dealing with here. Not the politics, but but how to help people make sure they knew Jesus. Now, the title of this episode we're calling Seeing God, that was the title I gave to it. And then, Monsignor, uh-huh. you, you added another addendum to the title. Yeah. Uh, you know, seeing God, and then in parentheses, uh, and living to tell about it. <laughs> Why did you add that to the title? Well, we, uh, I think because, you know, these these as we begin our readings today, um, Irenaeus is emphasizing the unknowability, the invisibility of the Father. Um, no man hath seen God and lived, he quotes from Scripture, you know, and... And then he now begins to lay out the God's plan to help us to see him and live and, and actually to have a life that is truly alive because of the vision of God that we're, we receive through Christ and the Holy Spirit. See, I have to admit that um, I, I struggled with this section um, I must have read it at least a half a dozen times in the last couple of weeks to try and nail down the theme and, and his argumentative flow. And I'm sure a, a trained patristic scholar could do a better job than, uh, than moi. Um, and I, I couldn't put my finger on why it was so difficult. I mean, I'm going to hold up for the audience, those who are watching it, here, here's my notes on that page, and here's my notes on that page, trying to figure it out. And um, and it struck me, a couple things jumped out at me as I thought, why is this hard for us if we're reading this today? And um, a couple things. And I think w- number one would be the reality of the devil in the spiritual battle. Now, the reason I bring that up is that I, I do believe that, unfortunately, a vast majority of Christians today, on a scale from 1 to 10, that belief in God and Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Trinity would be pretty high up on the scale. The majority of Christians today, on a scale from 1 to 10, if you're a Christian, generally, your belief in the mm-hmm. reality of God the Father our Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity would be a nine at least, maybe an eight. I hate to say that. I remember a survey that was done amongst Presbyterian pastors back in the 1990s, and it wasn't 100% of the clergy. Which was, but anyway, yeah. but, but belief in the devil on a scale from one to ten— I would say an awful lot of Christians today would probably give a yes to that, but we live our lives as if he's a myth. Or, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a met, not a, a metaphor or, or something like sure, that. No. No, or the, or the d- dark side of who we are, but, but it's still a myth. You know, it's just, yeah. Yeah. Or do we really do we really recognize that the devil is real? Personal. 
personal and a created being and all that the scriptures say about him and all that the faith in Irenaeus would believe about the reality of this battle. And I do believe that if, if we don't take that seriously, the reality of that battle, we won't get what Irenaeus is, is battling against. It'll, it'll be flippant. Hey, look at the battle we see in the news, if we are going to allow ourselves to listen to the news. If we don't take the reality of the devil seriously, then we aren't getting what's going on mm-hmm. in our world today. I agree. And we have to take that seriously. It's not God and the devil as two equal beings. No. There's an infinite difference between God, the creator, and the fallen angel that we call the devil, just like there's an infinite difference between God the Father and us. But he's very real. And Irenaeus took him seriously, and that's the only thing that allows us to take what Irenaeus is dealing with seriously. In the same way that, what about the other topic of the second coming of Christ? On a scale from 1 to 10, where, where would most Christians put that? And I would say most Christians would say, well, yeah, I believe that. Like we say it twice every Sunday in Mass, in the Creed, and then when we do the, what's it called? The, um, Monsignor, you know it. What's that one place? What's yeah. the, I'm having a senior moment here. Um, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Yeah, what's that called? Oh. The, the mystery, of, the mystery of faith, the yeah. mystery of faith. Yeah, mysterium fide. Yeah, yeah, the mystery. Of, we say it every Sunday, but we live our lives as if it's a myth or a metaphor. It's a metaphor of all of us are going to die and we're going to face God. But do we really believe that Christ is coming again? Is that or just something that's so far out in the future, something to worry about? Irenaeus didn't take it that way, and the truth is, we shouldn't either. It's a reality. Could we be going through the end times? Well, I can tell you right now, number one, we are in the end times. Irenaeus says that. The scriptures say that. The church says that. We are in the last age. We are. It began with the ascension of Christ. And it will. this end, last age, will end when he comes again. We're living in that time. Do we take it seriously? Do we look at what's happening in our world and ask, you know, you know are we, have we brought this on ourselves, folks? Is this during that difficult time? So the reason I say that is that is behind everything we're reading. Irenaeus took this very seriously, which is why he wrote these books, because of the spiritual battle he was fighting. Now, um, and what he was fighting about was people had a false understanding of how do you see God? How do you understand God? How do you understand ourselves in the light of God? He uses the phrase, in the light of God. And um, uh, he was in the midst of people that had a completely false way of understanding how to understand and how to see God, how, how to spend your, your if, you have, if you spend any time in prayer, any time in study, and you're trying to understand God, how do you go about seeing God? And the Gnostics had all kinds of ways. And, and because of those strange ways, they're ending up with a strange image of God. 
And that's what Irenaeus was fighting against. Mm -hmm. But the third point in the midst of that, why I think I found this uh, difficult to nail down in Monsignor, I'd like your comments on that, is because what Irenaeus was working so hard at sometimes not even, I don't think his argument, it could have used an editor maybe, you know, that because he was flowing with his yeah. argument and he could have used a really good editor. But part of the problem is that the, that what he was arguing to proclaim is stuff that we take so for granted now that it just seems um, common sense or commonplace to Christians. The Trinity relationship between the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, our, our ability not to see God, you know, all that stuff. I could almost see people yawn when we say what it is he said, but at his time, his time, he was fighting to get people. That's right. From, yeah. Right at the local parish or congregational level, there were fight. There was a fight for the soul of the people where they were going to go. Okay. So, I believe that one of the reasons of reading things like this is to get us to step back to appreciate so much of what we take for granted. And the truth is, these things which we take for granted are not necessarily agreed amongst all Christians, because so many of us Christians, these these aspects of our creed that we should be affirming on a scale from one to 10, at a 10, uh, we live as if they're about a five, maybe a three. And it's because of that laxity that the faith slowly generation after generation gets lost. Because one generation assumes it, right, and it doesn't get passed along, and pretty soon it's lost. Right, Von Senior? That's right. And it doesn't take long. It doesn't take long. Doesn't take long, and you know, Marcus. I, well, in my, just as a priest, but you know, just as an ordinary human being, looking at people's lives, to see um, the loss of faith in a person's life, it's the most tragic thing, and especially for the older for older people, and they stop they stop going to church. They the faith doesn't mean much for them anymore. It's like you're watching someone die before your very eyes. It's so sad. Yep. Yep. And, and part of that confusion that leads to that is because, seems to me, is because we have a, 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 a deposit of truth that our Lord Jesus gave to his apostles, promised that the Holy Spirit would help them remember and preserve that and pass it on. And the church, the purpose of the church was, as John Paul II says in the opening sentence of the catechism, to guard that. That's the first words that John Paul says at the beginning of the catechism, to guard the deposit. That's the reason we have the church. And if we simply could have done that, we would, we, we would have been able to preserve and pass it on. But from the beginning, the devil wanted to stop it, to destroy it, to confuse it, 
to, to flood the marketplace with ideas, confusing ideas. And, and that's why we have Irenaeus. That's why we have Irenaeus. That's why he did this. That in the midst of that battle, at an early part in the church, and we're seeing it how many generations later, and if, if Irenaeus came back and asked the average Christian what he believed, I think Irenaeus would be appalled on what the average Christian believes today. Or he'd turn on the TV and he'd see some of the health and wealth gospel folk. <laughs> I mean, exactly. I mean, it's just crazy. Why is it? Because the deposit of faith that was handed off mm -hmm. has been added to or subtracted away from or reinterpreted. Or, I mean, it's just, it's all over the place. And so we, um, now what I'm going to do today, uh, there's so much to, that we could go through. Um, everyone and I, again, I strongly encourage those of you to read it yourself. Don't never depend on, on just our discussion here. It's more important that you're reading Irenaeus and taking the time to, to digest him slowly and ask the questions. What is there about what he is saying that was so important for him to say it that today we just take for granted? And so is that why we're not quite jumping at it? What we're going to try and cover today is we're going to begin on page 361, kind of in the middle, because we're, we're really jumping into chapter 19, book four, chapter 19. And our goal, I think, Monsignor, I think we decided that, that we're going to go to the bottom of page 371. So we're going to try and do 10 pages. I think that's what we said. Right. And the way that we'll do this, there's just so much there. As I said, I showed you my, my page of notes, and it's just crazy. But um, I'm going to go through some thoughts, and then I'm going to turn it over to you, Monsignor, and you can share some thoughts. And we, I just have to apologize. There's just We can't cover everything in this section. So does that sound good to you, Monsignor? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So what I want to point out as I looked at this that first of all, it seems to me, Monsignor, that chapter 19 uh, is primarily about the issue of typology. And again, this has to do with the bigger picture of seeing God, seeing truth, seeing the salvation history, if you will. And one of the ways that God communicated that to us is through figures or types in Scripture. Now, oh, I didn't bring my Bible with me. I can't believe it. I left it in my office. But um, there's a, a Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and that's where Paul tells us that the reason of the Old Testament is that we, these things were given us to in the Old Testament so that they were a type, a figure, an example, a, a warning for us. The stuff in the Old Testament is there for us as a type, as a figure. The word is tupos or, or in the Greek word. Yeah. Yeah. They're given to us as a tupos, type, figure, example. The RSV has it as warning so that we don't do what they did. That's why. Mm -hmm. It points us to Christ, to the to the the uh, 
the spiritual interpretations of Scripture, you know, the uh, uh, the moral teaching or to Christ or to the church or to the future. I forget what those Greek words are for that, the anagogical and Monsignor, you probably remember those. But that's what this chapter is about, chapter 20. And part of the problem is um, that the, the false teachers are using that idea that the Old Testament points to new things, but they're misusing it. And that's always been the danger in the history of the church, is that individual interpretation can read into Scripture to have it mean things. And that's the big danger of sola scriptura. Uh, so that's why we've got to make sure, and Irenaeus would, I, would have said, that's why we've got to make sure that our interpretation of an, a scripture in the Old Testament is in line with the apostolic deposit of faith. As he says earlier in the book, that it could be traced to a church of an apostle. Right? Let's see. Okay. So we begin on page, we'll, we'll, we'll just do chapter 20 first, Monsignor, then we'll jump into 21. But, I mean, we'll do 19 first, and then we'll jump into 19 20. 19 first, yeah. Yeah. So we begin with the statement that we ended with last time on page 361, uh, kind of about half, a little over halfway down page 361. He says, in the same way that as he being in no need of those things, it wills them to be done by us for our own sake, that we be not unfruitful. So that this so this same word gave unto the people the precept of making oblations, though he needed them not, that they might learn to serve God. And so accordingly, he will have us also to offer our gift at the altar very often without ceasing. Now, I'm going to pause there. So what, what Irenaeus is saying, you have this Old Testament establishment of oblations so that they would learn how to serve God. And then he says, so accordingly, we have our oblation in the church. And we talked about that last week, right, Monsignor? Mm -hmm. The Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And the reason for the old was that they might learn to serve God and he's saying the parallel is that's part of the reason we have the new oblations, is that we might know how to serve God. Of course, that's in the context of the, of the liturgy, right? Um, and then he goes on, and the altar then is in heaven, for thither our prayers and oblations are directed, and the temple, as John saith in the Revelation, and the temple of God was opened, and the tabernacle, for behold, saith he, the tabernacle of God, wherein he will dwell with men. But all gifts and oblations and sacrifices the people receive by way of type. Tupos. As it was shown to Moses in the mount. For one and the same God, whose name is now also glorified in the church in all nations, and as for the earthly things which are ordered with a view to us, it suits well that they should be types of the things which are heavenly, made, however, by the same God, for in no other way could he represent the image of things spiritual. Now, that word represent is a favorite word of yours, Monsignor, right? 
Um, we, sorry, which one do you want now? The, I'm sorry. I, I did it. That word represent, for on the top of page 362, about the one, two, three, four, five, six line down. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That word represent is what other word? Um, a similare? Well, you, <laughs> you, you talked about that in the past, right? Right. Yeah. This whole idea of assimilation. And recapitulation. Recapitulation. That's right. That's mm-hmm. the, yeah. but how does yeah. how does God communicate to us things we don't see, things that are spiritual? That's right, and really, that's how He begins this um, this chapter nineteen is to lay out how we're different than the His Gnostic opponents on this subject. Um, so, at the end of chapter eighteen. Uh, you pointed it out already, the altar is in heaven. So how do we offer our gifts there? How do we get the gifts to the altar? And that's how he's, chapter 19, he begins to talk about typology um, in that sense. How are we going to get our gifts to the altar so that we can make an offering pleasing to God? Um and it's really, I think this is um, a continuation of his of his writing about the Eucharist here, because um, essentially he's arguing here that the Eucharist is the means um, by which um, God represents the images of things spiritual in in um, things that are of this world or this that are created. So, bread and wine, ordinary ordinary stuff of our of our material world are symbolic um, of course we now we use the word we further we go further and say they're transformed but they are they are symbolic um, sacramentally significant in pointing us to um, yeah. pointing us above and then so uh, you know you've talked about this too um, this chapter now begins to lay out all sorts of ways that, um, especially through the Old Testament, we see God using um, human people, prophets yeah. and patriarchs, and he, um, things of this world to teach us about um, about what's what lives in the in in um, the invisible world. And Marcus, the other thing I may make out out as we get started on this too is one of the absolutely fundamental principles to understand about how people Christian people look at God at this point in the church's life is their conviction that God the Father is unknowable and invisible cannot be reached by the intellect and and it requires it requires the Father to make it possible for us to know Him by sending the Word and and the Spirit. Um, two, if I can make two other points, then I'll kick it over to you. Um, no. Just so I, everybody can kind of keep in mind what what um, how the Gnostics are looking at this situation um, when they talk about the God that they're after, he lives, he lives above the pleroma. 
And it's not just the he, it could be many sequences right. of it. Who knows? But then there's, the, so there's that God up there. Then there's the play Roma, which is above existence. And below the play Roma, there comes the father. There's the father. And then comes the creator. And then comes the created world. And in the Gnostic way of thinking, Christ hasn't, is not related to the Father. Because Christ comes from above the Pleroma. He's sent from above. So he bypasses the Father. He bypasses the creation to come and, and reach these souls that are, you know, needing to be saved. And, and Irenaeus' point here is to say in, in section one here, right at the end of section one on page 362, um, that the, they can't, the Gnostics can't have sacraments by definition. For these doing so will be forced, as we have often shown above, to be continually inventing types of types and images of images and never to fix their mind upon the one true God. Because their thoughts have come to be higher than God, they in their hearts, transcending their master himself, and while in their fancy they are greatly lifted up and overpassing, indeed, they are sinking away from the true God. So having rejected the, having rejected the father of this world, they don't have sacraments because the the stuff of the sacraments, the material elements of the sacraments of this world point to a father who doesn't, they want to go higher than that. So sacraments are nonsense for Gnostics, basically. It seems to me that another thing that Irenaeus is pointing out is the crucial, the, the, the how crucial it is to understand your hermeneutic. Mm-hmm. That really is the issue. You, what is your hermeneutic? What is the lens that a person brings to Scripture, to the apostolic deposit of faith? And... That's, in essence, I think, Monsignor, is what Irenaeus has been fighting against this whole time, is because people came to, came to the truth of the apostolic deposit of faith with lenses about matter, right? About, about the world, about the pleroma, about this, that, in a way, is more important than the truth itself, the hermeneutic was more important than the truth itself. So what had to give the truth? And what Irenaeus has been trying to work through all these books is to help them examine their the, the incompatibility, uh, the, the irrationality of their hermeneutic to, to cut through that so they can hear what's true about seeing God. And that's right where we're in the midst of. Yeah. Does that make sense? I mean, I mean yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because if they can't, their hermeneutic forces them to come up with, as you said, these crazy layers of things. To me, a great example of that is the difference between, if I get this right, uh, the geocentric and the heliocentric images of reality. Because if you have a, a geocentric idea of the universe, in other words, you see the earth as the uh -huh. center of the universe, then as you study the stars, you study the planets, you study comets, you study what's going on up there, and the more you see them, and you have to explain them, given your hermeneutic of it's centered around the earth, you have to come up with these mathematical crazy equations and, and ellipses and and uh, to explain well how do I how do I map out Venus circling the earth how do I map out Saturn circling the earth how do I map out the sun how do I map out that star when I watch it trace it you end up with a craziness but once you understand that no the sun is the center of our universe of of our galaxy then all of a sudden it becomes much simpler. It makes more sense. Yeah. And, and, and that's what he's getting at here. Yeah. So, go ahead. So, so uh, you know, as we you know push on a little bit uh, into section two there, um, I, I noted that sentence in toward the bottom of the page for truly... Great are the repositories of the heavenly treasure. God is immeasurable in heart and incomprehensible in mind and holding the earth in his grasp. Um, so he wants to go back to this first principle again, the unknowability of God. And what follows in, in section two then is how, how it's nonsense for us to try to perceive that we can measure the hand of God, let alone enter into the mind of God. He, he makes that point. Just yeah. what you said. Write the next yeah. sentence, the bottom of 362, it says, who tells over the measure of his right hand? So in other words, let's just consider the hand of God. And he goes through right. and shows how possible it is. And then if you jump over to the beginning of section three, he says, but if man comprehend not the fullness and greatness of his hand, how shall anyone have power to understand or know in his heart so great a God? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I love how, he, you know, he, he goes on, um, now that we've, you know, established that, that he's unknowable, then... Um, then he talks about how the Gnostics, in reality, descending into the deep abyss of madness, and that they say of him whom they call father, that he is limited by the things which are without or outside the Pleroma. In other words, the father's below that line of existence. Um, but that the creator, on the contrary, attains not to the Pleroma. And so they lay it down that neither of the two is perfect and all comprehending. Um, you know, I want to get back to the issue of hermeneutic again. It really points out 
that if your hermeneutic is wrong, in other words, the, the lens that you bring of your assumptions, it leads to craziness. The same thing is true today. You know, the hermeneutic of, let's say, John Calvin that emphasized the sovereignty of God over everything else, mm -hmm. that hermeneutic, in the end, had to end up with the conclusion that man does not have freedom of the will. That we don't have freedom to choose because of the sovereignty of God. And so if you yeah. so emphasize the sovereignty of God, you have to you have to face the reality of well, then how are we what difference does our prayers make if God has so predestined everything from the beginning of the world, then what difference does God and so we, we get forced into a corner because of our hermeneutic or Luther's hermeneutic on faith alone. If you push that so far, then pretty soon, I was brought up Lutheran, pretty soon works mm -hmm. don't make a difference. Mm -hmm. If you were saved in Christ because you accepted him at a Bible camp 50 years ago, and so now for you're guaranteed of salvation because you were given salvation by that acceptance of Christ by grace, and there's nothing you can do to lose it, then what difference does it make how you live your life? These are hermeneutics. And the flaws of, if your hermeneutic's wrong, it colors everything. And maybe that's why we got Christians today doing crazy things, because the hermeneutics are bad. And if anything, that's why Newman, in his development, was saying that's why you need the church, to make sure your hermeneutic's right. Exactly. And that's, <laughs> I think that's St. Irenaeus' argument, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> He's taken five books to try and say, guys, your hermeneutic's wrong. Hermeneutic is just a big word and theology word for the lens, the assumptions, the presuppositions through which you in interpret Scripture. Pope Benedict made a big emphasis on the hermeneutic of continuity, to showing that there's a connection between the yeah. old and the new. And it, we move right into chapter 20. Because now chapter 20, which is a very long chapter, and, and uh, we're going to have to just skim over it a little bit, but this is really where he takes everything here. He says, if you, if you don't know the hand of God, if you can't, then how do you understand his fullness? And so he gets into this statement, which he repeats four times in this chapter, which to me points out that this was big to Irenaeus. And I'll show you where he points it out four times. He begins at the end of chapter 19, but that no one can express the greatness of God by the things which are made, this is evident unto all. And that, great, that his greatness fails not, but contains all, and reaches even to us and is with us, everyone will allow who is minded worthily of God. So, You know, I think about Bonaventure's idea of, of looking at creation to see God. And Paul said that in Romans 1. But what Irenaeus is saying, that does give us vestiges of God, but that doesn't mean yeah. that, that it gives you everything you need to fully know God by looking at a leaf or a you can you see the evidence of the reality of God's order and his creativity in looking and studying a leaf 
but you can't know the fullness of God by looking at a leaf. And that's what he's saying here. Okay. Then he goes on. In respect Marcus, to, could I ask you a quick question? Yes, please. Just, just following up on what you say, do you think Irenaeus would have accepted the cosmological argument for the existence of God? Could we argue from things to God? Well, I've always, and I have, you know, I mean, uh, to me, that's where, to me, that's the, first of all, that's the difference between St. Thomas Aquinas and Bonaventure in my mind. Yeah. Is St. Thomas Aquinas begins with God and works to man, and Bonaventure works from creation up to God. And that's the cosmological thing, yeah. that you yeah. look at the world, and eventually you you argue from order that, that there's a creator. And that's Bonaventure's journey of the mind to God are the seven steps, I yeah. think, if I remember, yeah. of going from creation up. Aquinas was the other way around, I think, right? That's right. That's that's right. Yeah, thank you. And certainly that's Irenaeus's point here. It's got to come from the top down. It's not from the bottom up. Yeah, we, I, I think, now on the other hand, I would argue that Irenaeus would, he affirmed the reality, if you remember, the natural precepts of the law, uh-huh. which are part of our conscience. So he, I think he would say that the evidence of God is there in creation. It's in our conscience. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But to know God's greatness is going to come through revelation. Right. That's what you're saying. It's going to come. Right. That's what he's right. saying here. It's going to come from no. God. To see God has got to come from him. And, and if anything, that's why the Nazis got us so screwed up, because they, they recognize there's a problem with matter showing us God, but they, their conclusion was coming up wrong out of that. Mm-hmm. So, but anyways, at the beginning of chapter 20, um, verse 1, excuse me. Uh, verse 1, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> section 1, line 1. He, he has a statement that he repeats four times in four different ways. And I think to me that says this is pretty important to Irenaeus. He says, in respect of his greatness, then, one cannot know God, for it is impossible to measure the Father. But in respect of his love, for this it is which by his word leads us to God, we obeying him are ever learning that God is so great, and that it is he who by his own self created and elected and and beautified and preserved all things, and among them also, both ourselves and this world, to which we appertain, we therefore were also made with the things which are contained therein. Now, I just read that, and let me read, if you jump over to section 4, Page, the top of page 366, starting down, yeah. There is therefore one God who by his word and wisdom made and arranged all things, and this is the creator who also assigned this world to the race of man. In respect indeed of his greatness, he is unknown to all them that were made by him, for no one hath traced out his brightness neither among the ancients who are gone to rest nor among those who are now who now are but 
in respect of his love, he is known always by him through whom he created all things. And this is his word, our Lord Jesus, who in the last times was made a man among men, that he might join the end unto the beginning, i.e. man unto God. And then second, thirdly, if you jump down to the bottom of that page, you've got the very last sentence, I grant that in respect of his greatness and marvelous glory, no man shall see God and live, for the Father is incomprehensible, but in respect of his love and mercifulness and of his almightiness, he grants even this to such as love him, I mean to see God. And then fourthly, if you jump to section 7 on page 7, Oh, excuse me, on page uh, 369. Uh, for the glory of God is a living man, and the life of man is to see God. For if that revelation of God, which is by the Creator, parts life to all live on the earth, much more than man. That's not what I'm looking for. Um, oh, excuse me. Section 8, down toward the bottom of 369. Um That, might, that man might be formed beforehand, exercising appropriate himself, that glory which shall be hereafter revealed unto them that love God. I'm not finding that other verse. I'm sorry, I got so many notes here. My point is, let me go back to there's this, this statement about we can't see him in his mightiness but we see him in his love. That's the point. Yeah. You know, Marcus, I also hear, um, I hear Irenaeus, the evangelist here, you know, speaking to a pagan, to perhaps people that are steeped in pagan thought, because, you know, the Platonists have, you know, the Logos is essential for helping um, people come to conceive the reality of the one, but it's a whole entirely intellectual pursuit. And by introducing the category of love, um, it makes it so much more understandable how God reaches out to us and how we can respond. Um, it, so that, that category of love is really I found it very powerful here. Yeah, the um, in that one statement where he says, um, "I grant that in respect," this is at the bottom of page of page three sixty six. I grant that in respect of his greatness and marvelous glory, no man shall see God and live. For the Father is incomprehensible, but in respect of his love and mercifulness and of his almightiness, he grants even this to such as love him. I mean to see God. 
And the reason that, again, jumped out at me, because in another place, he equates this love with Jesus. The word. It is, yeah. That's what we're talking and, about here. That's right. And the prophets get a foretaste of it. But in Irenaeus' scheme, um, Christ is active in that their ministry of prophecy. So he's there for the whole thing. So they get a they get a a glimpse of it. It, it seems to me that if you yeah. if you assume that, how do you see God? And you, you, we can't see him and live, he says. In reality, we, we don't even see his, we don't even understand his hand. He's incomprehensible. But so how, do, how have we come to know God? Well, he's shown it to us in his love, and we see it in his son. And he's been communicated from the very beginning through the visions of the prophets, through the, through the, through the images, the types. There's all different ways of seeing the reality of God. That's what this section's about. If you if you have that, and then you read this section, that it all f- falls into place. And but I wanted to point out when he says, in respect of his love and mercifulness and of his almightiness, I think those words key to an Old Testament word. I don't know if I've talked about this in our past programs, the Hebrew word hesed. Mm-hmm. The Hebrew word hesed, which is sometimes in the uh, the New American Bible, Catholic New American Bible. I'm not really excited about this. They translate it often as love, but it, it really means has a much deeper meaning. And it's the RSV, I think, does a much better because it always translated as God's steadfast love. It could be translated as mercy. But when you see in the Old Testament Psalms, uh, the phrase, his steadfast love endures forever, that is where hesed is. And it's, it is a word that, that appears all the way through the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, it is a word that's translated as mercy. We see it in the Magnificat. In the Benedictus, this word mercy, this unique quality of of God, that it's it's almost like when we in Greek we try and point out that there's a number of words for love, but they all have different meanings. That's why the word agape is such an important word. I believe that this idea of hesed in the Old Testament is a crucial word to understand how God re- expresses his character to creation. And I think Irenaeus is pointing that out. This is how you know God, is this deep idea. This this word steadfast love also in the, in the Psalms is often parallel with the word of his faithfulness, his steadfast love and faithfulness, steadfast love and faithfulness. That's how we know God. That is the hermeneutic to look through. And even when he seems judgmental in the Old Testament, and he's angry. You've got to look through it through the lens of his steadfast love and faithfulness for his people and why he's been forced to, because he's a jealous God, because he wants his people to have a relationship with him, not false gods. And so he has to react, but it all comes through his mercifulness, his almightiness, his, his steadfast love. Um. I do, there's one point in here, 
in the middle of page 367. For as those who see the light are in the light and partake of its splendor, so those who see God are in God, partaking of his splendor, and the brightness quickens them. Those, therefore, who see God who partake of life, and therefore the unlimited and incomprehensible and invisible exhibited himself to the faithful as seen and comprehended and limited, that he might quicken those who received him and see him by faith. I have that word faith circled about 40 times because it, 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 you can slip by it, but at the center of everything here is the way we see the love of God is by faith. The Gnostics want to have a handle on understanding God, not by faith, but by reason or yeah. by something more physical, uh-huh. you know, a proof. It will always be faith. No matter how much we reason it, it will always be faith in the end. We'll walk by faith. All right, Monster, I feel like we're, we're tr- I'm trying, I may be making it more complicated here, but I'm trying to summarize this section for us. Another yeah. aspect that comes out, and then I want to turn it over to you, is uh, I want to make sure that we recognize the way that Irenaeus constantly refers to the Trinity throughout this section. You see it in flowing and woven into everything he says. Yeah, it has I, made a, I agree with you on that, yeah. And it has to do in this context of how one sees God, how God has revealed himself to his creation from the beginning through now, through the scriptures, through his revelation. And he says it a number of times, but uh, one place that he shows it, and again, this is a, he repeats this a number of times, but um, uh, one place is on page 367 where he says, For God is mighty in all things, having been then first seen by the spirit of prophecy, next seen again through the Son in the way of adoption, and lastly he shall be seen in the kingdom of heaven as a father. The spirit first preparing man in the Son of God, then the Son leading him to the Father, and the Father lastly bestowing incorruption upon unto eternal life which ensures unto everyone from his beholding God. So, Monsignor, he's got God the Father, Creator, unknowable, invisible, all those words. Then there's the Word, his, God's love, the Son, and then there's the Spirit. In another place, there's always the parallel of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And he presents the Trinity, doesn't use the word Trinity, of course, but he, he presents it as the, the flow by which we came to see God, the Spirit through prophecy leading to the Son, who makes us know the Father, and through whom we have eternal life, and therefore divinization which he talks about in another place. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and 
Yeah, that's a, it's a, this is a very important passage in terms of showing how the, how um, he, well, as you said, you know, he understands the work of salvation in this Trinitarian sense. Um, all, all of the persons are active in this work of salvation. Um, whereas, like in the Gnostic system, you know, um, well, two of them have sat out, <laughs> or they're just yeah. in a different world, you know, basically. So it's, yeah, it's, I appreciate you very much you bringing that one up. Well, there's another place, if you turn to page 368, this in, uh, the second paragraph, and so God was manifested. For mm-hmm. in all this, God the Father is shown forth, the Spirit first working, then the Son ministering, the Father again approving, and man, lastly, made perfect unto salvation. And I had one more I, I had written down um, uh, on in section three, back in section three, um, at the very beginning, in the middle of page 365. Yes. Um, the word that is the son always was with the father as we have proved at large. In other words, we've been busy on that one. But that wisdom also, which is the spirit, which was with him before all creation, and then he gives some scripture for that. So there you have uh, a, really a full doctrine of the Trinity laid out here. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it isn't as fine-tuned as we'll find later. Right, right. You know, and yeah. the question is if you— would, would Irenaeus have said that what we have here is one God in three persons— I don't know if you would use that special word "person." Yeah, I. He's a little cautious on using that word, but um, would he have said three gods and one God? You know, I next for our next one. I'll try to have an answer for you on that. I've got to just review my notes before I commit. Yeah, and I don't know what okay. is yeah. in my reading too. No. You know, we're at this it's, point in time in theological history, how are they? And yeah. It's almost it's like, like a, it was. It was. I think actually, I think it was Tertullian that uses the word "person" for the first time of the of the three members of the Trinity. So, I mean, it, 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 sometimes he's talking about each one has a different function in creation, a different function in reality. Um, it usually sounds like he's got God the Father as a higher mm-hmm. position than the Son and the Spirit. Um, but oh, for sure, that's for sure. There's a there's a definitely a hierarchical. Um, you know, at some point when we get on this again, I just I don't know where I've got my icon of the Blessed Trinity. You know the the three that are with um, are with Abraham under the oak of Mamre. Um, Irenaeus belongs to that group that says that that was Christ and two angels, not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, who, who were there. So he definitely is part of this earlier 
way of thinking of the Trinity hierarchically. The um, I'd like, um, Monsignor, you because of time, you had one more thing you wanted to point out. Two more. Go ahead, please. Two more things. Go to go to um, uh, page three sixty four, Marcus. Okay. And um, because you have such a lovely speaking voice, would you read the first sentence there in paragraph uh, in paragraph two? Well, um, well, therefore spake the Scripture, which saith, first of all, believe thou that there is one God. Excuse me. Well, therefore spake the Scriptures, which saith, first of all. Believe thou that there is one God who created and perfected all things and caused all to come out of non-existence into existence, comprehending all and comprehended by none. Thank you. That was beautifully read. All right. And what? where does that come from? I'm sorry? Where does it come from? It says, it doesn't well, from, it says... Oh, the shepherd of Hermas. Yeah, but yeah, but Marcus, it says here, well, therefore spake the scriptures, which said. <laughs> What's going on here, do you suppose? <laughs> well, that's a very, very good point. Because who was I just, someplace else I was making a reference to that, that at this point in time, the canon isn't closed yet. That's right, and the shepherd of Hermas is um, Irenaeus regarded it as scripture. Um, I just think that's is a fascinating note in terms of how the New Testament canon is is still in a period of development. Has Marcion already done his cutting and pasting of the new t- of the Bible at this point? Yes, yes, because. Uh, Irenaeus actually talks about it, I think, back in book two. Okay, that's right. So the point being that the idea of the need to make a canon is probably starting to arise. And and am I right? Was it Athanasius that was the first one we have written down that has the canon as we now have it before it was at the Council of Rome? yeah. Yeah, he's the first to give us the complete list. And so he's... So that would have been back in, that would be in the, mm, gosh, in the 350s, something like that, I think. so. Okay, so we're still uh, 150 years away from Irenaeus. So, yeah. but yeah, good point. And, yeah. and um, um, I've always been fascinated with, The Shepherd of Hermas is an interesting book. You guys have published. Uh, Coming Home Network has actually, haven't you published? We didn't do the Shepherd. We we okay. You we didn't, didn't include get there. that in the, the Apostolic Fathers. Right. Yeah. It's often linked with the Apostolic Fathers. Right. And it's um, we don't know exactly where it comes from, but the tradition is that the Shepherd of Hermas was written by um, someone close to one of the first bishops of Rome, um, Linus Cletus. Not Clement, I think Clement comes after, um, but earlier than Clement. So, but but just a note I wanted to make about it is, um, whoever the editor was, 
that put that little footnote in there, Shepherd of Hermas 2.1, that's, that's not actually accurate. Um, it's Because I, I went and looked up this text, and it really is in the Shepherd of Hermas. Um, it's in Mandate 1.1. 1, 1. So um, first of all, in the Shepherd of Hermas, you have the visions, and then come mandates, and this is Mandate one, one that this okay. quotation comes from. So if anyone is really keen to follow up on that, that's where they'd find it. All right. Sorry for, I didn't mean to be so obtuse. No, 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 that's okay. that's neat. Because I was thinking maybe you were drawing me to MATLAB. I, I didn't notice that uh, at the time. Yeah. Thank you. Now you had yeah, one no, other I, thing you wanted to talk about too. Yeah. Um, in, in uh, there we go. I, I wanted to make a note of that here too. And I wanted to go over to... Um, Page three sixty nine. All right. You've already read it briefly, Marcus. Um, at the end of section seven, uh, the glory of man, the glory of God. Sorry, you'll see where I'm going here. Glory of God is a living man, and the life of man is to see God. And you, we note here that there is a a different reading um, that could be rendered um, uh, the vision of God. Um, so the glory of God is a living man um, or um, gosh, how would we put the glory of God is man fully alive. Um, there, the, the Latin is a little bit vague here. Um, uh, Gloria anem dei Evans homo, um, however you want to translate that, but um, it is, it is, a, it's become, how do I put it? It's become extremely controversial hmm. in, in, in Catholic theology, this, this section. There's nothing wrong with what St. Irenaeus is saying. Marcus, you already said at the beginning, this is about Jesus Christ. Um, he is, he is the first truly living man. And it is in Christ that we find our life. This has been taken by um, more modern theologians in a different direction. Um, and instead of talking about Jesus Christ being the subject here, you and I become the subject. So the glory of God is when Marcus Grodi has reached his full fulfillment as a human person. And he's just completely put together intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, physically, um, you know, and I've heard, I've heard um, even Catholic theologians going on and on about this from time to time saying that, that um, this is about calling the human being to, to be fulfilled and yeah. Christ is actually left out of the picture um, anyway I just I'm amazed by that and you know if if um, no I'm wondering is the the he's got the Greek at the bottom right yeah vivens homo well that um, yeah apparently yeah that was must have been 
that must have been a fragment that survived. Yeah, so there's um, a, there's a fragment, yeah. and then the the Latin gave it instead of for the glory of God is a living man, which would clearly be Jesus. Uh huh. That you could translate it for the glory of God is for man to live. Mm-hmm. And that's where that confusion's coming from. And it sounds to me like, once again, we've got a translation of a translation of a translation leading to problems. We do. And what I wanted to go, I wanted to take this just a little further. Unfortunately, I I could race over here and grab it, but the Catechism of the Catholic Church has actually complicated this somewhat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and if I can, if you just excuse me, I want to go and grab my book here, my catechism. I want to read it out loud. Okay, so while Monsignor is going to get his catechism, I first of all I want to thank you all for sticking with us for this long post-hour reflection on this passage. Uh, of course, our, our assumption okay, is all of you. you are busy. You can you can pause this program and come back uh, if it gets a bit too long. Okay, Monsignor, please. This is my last point here. Um, in the Catechism, paragraph 294 of the Catechism, quotes Irenaeus here. The glory of God consists in the realization of this manifestation and communication of his goodness for which the world was created. God made us to be his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, for the praise of his glorious grace. Okay, so that's a good context there. And then it goes on to translate Irenaeus by saying, for the glory of God is man fully alive. Moreover, man's life is the vision of God. Um, if God's revelation through creation has already obtained life for all the beings that dwell on earth, how much more will the word's manifestation of the Father obtain life for those who see God? It's just, you know, the, it's a little bit more awkward in the translation of Irenaeus that we find in paragraph 294, because it opens the door to those that want to say that this is about human fulfillment. Interesting. And yeah. I think we want to be very, very clear on this point that... Um, this not what this is not what Saint Irenaeus is saying at all. Um, it's kind of interesting. Uh, his, that gets us his point here is that Christ reveals God to man, and Christ presents man to God. Um, uh, he, you know, Christ preserves the invisibility of God so that we won't learn to despise God by familiarity, but. Um, but he also um, calls us to him, and, and as we live in Christ, um, and become, we become more fully alive because we're in that person of Christ. And, and the reason for that is that the vision of God is what keeps man alive. Um, that's basically his argument in, 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 in paragraph 7 there. Sorry, I, I get it on my in seeing it in, in the entire context, well, we've, it makes sense. You know, the the, yeah. the way that people are taking it today, which, again, is because of their hermeneutics that they bring to it, they they take it and, and shift it a bit. 
Um, uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I was, it was, gosh, I was, um, it was, it was about 10 years ago, maybe, um, here, here, September, October issue of 2012 of Touchstone magazine. I read an article by Patrick Reardon on this text. Oh, really? And it really hit me between my, between the eyes because he, he identified how mistranslating this part of Irenaeus has led people down the wrong road. I'm wondering if this is a, a, a sentence to end with, and it's there in the, down on page 369. If you come down a bit, it says, um, um, not only should prophetic mention be made of God and the Son of God, of the Son and the Father, but that he should even be seen of all his members, sanctified and taught the things which belong unto God, that man might be formed beforehand and exercised in appropriating to himself that glory which shall be hereafter revealed unto him that love God. Now, the reason I grabbed that sentence is that this whole section has been that there's there's a way in which God has revealed himself to us. That's right. And if by grace we've come to love, to approach God through the hermeneutic of love, if you will, then you begin to see him more clearly through his word, revealed through the Spirit and the prophets who point to Christ, the love of God, who points us to the Father, and then through the Father we see his glory. And it's in seeing his glory. Mm-hmm. That's the life of man, he says. The light of man. Is to see his glory. Could and you, the full life of man, yeah. Could you close us with a, a prayer, Father? Of course, yeah. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We thank you, blessed Lord, for the gift of your Son, who came among us to make you known and to give us that vision and that light and that life, um, which is to know you and to be with you. And we ask that um, in our own generation, in our own times, that we will be faithful to this as St. Irenaeus was to his. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor. And thank all of you for joining us on this episode of Deep in History. Look forward to joining you again next week.